0: Good Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for November 24th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellums. This is your public radio station, 91.3 KUAF. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere through the new, updated, free KUAF app. For this day before a big holiday, we're talking to authors of books covering big ideas. Later this hour, we'll talk to the two writers behind the book, Tax the Rich, one independently wealthy The other not. And after that, the man who read every single Marvel comic book published since 1961, tens of thousands of them, and he discovered there's a lot going on that parallels our real world. That's ahead. First, a brand new book, illustrated with eye popping graphs and colorful national geographic maps, that considers our global climate. Brian Buma is an associate professor in the Department of Integrative Biology at the University of Colorado, Denver, and he thinks about the planet and its climate, a lot. And putting his curiosity to work, he's created The Atlas of a Changing Climate. It's a lush, hardback book filled with maps, graphs, and images that help take a really big concept, how Earth's ecological systems and winds and oceans and life are fully connected. And he makes that big concept understandable. We recently called Brian to ask about the new book. He told us his desire was to help us all understand how the world's climate works, and how we can tell it's changing.
1: So I've talked to a lot of folks uh, around the world about climate change, and when I'm talking to non-scientists, the thing that often comes up the most, the challenge that comes up with the most in terms of like comprehending how the you know how the climate's changing, what a big deal it is, is the difficulty in relating your everyday experience at the scale of your house or your neighborhood or your backyard to the climate of the world, which is what's you know, which is what's changing, and so a big part of this book, which is over half maps and imagery um, of the world at large, um, a big point of that was communicating how the world works at the scale at which it works. So the goal was education; it wasn't to scare folks, really. It was it was simply to tell folks, you know, this is this is how the world works when we think about the. The entire climate system, and to do that, you really have to visualize it at that scale. So, the, there's a lot of historical imagery in here because by looking at what folks were struggling with 150 years ago and how our view of broad scales started to emerge, you can see why it was a challenge to to comprehend climate 150 years ago. You, we just couldn't see it. You know, it's just hard to relate weather to. The world, and now we have an immense amount of resources: satellite imagery, uh, models, uh, just a lot of measurements from around the, from around the world. And I think it's beautiful. I think looking at the um, global climate system, like you're saying, the tides at the scale of the world, or or the westerlies, or um, um, things like the Mississippi River at the scale of the whole Mississippi River, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. But it also communicates how those things work. And once you understand that, then I think the the science of climate change and the consequences of climate change become self-apparent, and and you don't need someone to tell you that this is a big deal. You can see that it's a big deal.
0: Yeah, the historical maps, I don't know, give you this, and, and there are some from the 18th century, the 17th century, they give you this idea of the, the vast unknown, right? Because so much was unknown. But then right. you mentioned the Westerlies, and there's a map, in the first fourth of the book that includes the westerlies, the polar front, the horse latitudes. And this map makes it all seem like we're so much closer and everything in relation to itself does matter.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing what we can see now and they couldn't before. You know, 100, 120, 130 years ago when they were trying to figure out where hurricanes were, for example, they were relying on Sporadic measurements that boats made when they were crossing the Atlantic. So they only had a couple measurements here, or there, you know, and some some guy was making that measurement on the deck of a boat, tossed in the waves. You know, they they were piecing together things from very sort of scattered observations, and now now we can see how these things work, and it's it's amazing, and the one thing that happens when you keep looking at these maps over and over again of how climate works is you realize we're none of us are separate we're all in this um this same context you know the the weather that hits me right now in Colorado is going to get to you guys in a in a couple days and, and or a couple hours sometimes and you know we we need to see that so that we can understand why you know for example there might be a polar outbreak on the east coast like why winter may have some extreme cold snaps and that's not a reflection of of something about climate science breaking down or something like that that's a reflection of cold air getting displaced like moving around you know one of my one of the one of the um, impetuses for this book was um was quite a while ago but it got me thinking on this was In 2015, when when Senator Inhofe brought a snowball onto the onto the floor of Congress and said, you know, it's really cold outside, that means climate change is breaking down, and that was such a weird feeling for me because I was in Alaska, living in Alaska at the time, and it was incredibly warm, and so we're like wondering where is our cold air gone, and it had it had gone to D.C., and just the idea that folks could Conflate those two things um, when really it's just one extension of the other. You know, the cold air in one spot had gone somewhere else. We can visualize that. That map is in this book. We can see that happen, and and so by looking at those things, we can. I, I hope folks get a better understanding of. All right, you know, this this really is just one Earth system. It's not weather here, weather there. It's it's weather everywhere.
0: The name of the book is the Atlas of a Changing Climate one of the very first sentences in this book is one that kind of hit me as being something so obvious that I had never really thought about it, though. And you write, one of your most intimate relationships is with the atmosphere. And perhaps it's because we take the air about us often for granted. We don't think of it as a relationship.
1: Oh, For sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I get it. I mean, people have busy lives. You just sort of don't see these things happening in the background. But but it's there, you know, it's there every day. And, and sometimes I think maybe that's, that's why it's hard to see climate change is because when you think about these slowly warming averages of temperature, well, you're sort of immersed in it all the time, but it's something we need to think about. It's something we need to be aware of, like, where does your air come from? You know, what makes it warm? What makes it cold? You know, we're we're living in it. And so we need to start you know, thinking more consciously about what we're doing to it. You know, it, it's a it's a global pool, you know, and we're all swimming in it. So we better think about what we're putting into that water or <laughs> air in this case. <laughs>
0: one of my favorite chapters is about cities. And and often I think when we think of environment or climate, we, we picture forests or maybe deserts or the ocean. But you make this point that cities which have grown in 1800, there were three cities, urban areas that had one million or more people by 2010, there were nearly 450. And one thing you point out is that not just what's happening in the cities, but what it takes to keep those cities going and the flow of, of produce and food and other items to and from the city.
1: Yeah. The cities chapter resonates with a lot of people and I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's interesting. I, I don't see, I think it's, um, it, it behooves us to think about cities not as separate, or the urban system, and humans not as separate from the rest of the world, but just as one more component of it. That it's a common uh, mistake. Folks think is that somehow we're we're removed, you know, from the world around us because we can get around hot days with air conditioning or cold days with heat. But cities are really interesting. They're they're essentially human created habitats. We've created this this landscape that serves our needs, uh, as we've created them and, and they are exploding, you know, over half the people in the world are moving or living in urban areas. Um, as you mentioned that, 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 that map of million cities uh, or more have increased, uh, you know, from three to 442 as of 2010, it, it's pretty stunning. Um, but and I'm not a big city person. I've always actually always lived in small cities or towns. Uh, but it's, it, it's It's fascinating to think about the real footprint of a city, because I do a lot of work in wilderness areas, and so you know every once in a while you'll fly, I'll fly over a big city or something. you see this like plop of concrete on the ground. And that's all well and good, but the, imagine that as only being the city is, of course, you know, very disingenuous. Like in the Midwest, you know you have you have cities, right? But and, you, and a lot of farmland, but that farmland is intimately connected to Los Angeles or New York or Miami, right? like cities have to take energy from elsewhere and take in the form of food and they, and they distribute other things, usually in the form of information or entertainment or, you know, something else. So cities really do have their tendrils everywhere, you know, and they're much bigger than the, than the, uh, than the land that they occupy. So they become a really interesting thing, right? Like it's not just, this is how a city works. It's like, this is how a city and the landscape that's connected to the city work. and now that it's global now that the world is global, it's even more interesting right? because um, you know the tendrils of a city will reach across oceans like I'm you know using a using a computer the, to type this and pieces of it were pulled into manufacturing cities from all over the world. So it cities are a fascinating component that and yet one more thing that we need to understand if we really want to think about how we're going to live on the planet in a sustainable fashion.
0: One of my favorite maps in the Atlas of a Changing Climate is one that traces four different migratory routes, the monarch butterfly, the pronghorn, the Mexican free-tailed bat, and the sandhill crane. The sandhill crane goes from Mexico to damn near Siberia. It's amazing. Why did you choose this map and these four particular routes?
1: Uh, well, these maps, so these maps actually came from a variety of sources. Right. Some of these were um, from... A lot of them are from National Geographic, and then many are from data visualization specialists, and some of them were commissioned for, uh, specifically for this book. Um, in, in the case of that map, which is uh, originally from National Geographic, the the point is showing how um, how how animals essentially, or some animals, migratory animals. Move around to take advantage of seasonality on the planet. Like they're not migrating just for the fun of it. In some ways, they're migrating to keep a consistent, uh, consistent uh, set of conditions around them. You know, some of these things, like you're talking about uh, sandhill cranes and and many birds. If you think about it, they never experience winter. You know, they, which is a f- bizarre thing to think about, but these birds essentially have an endless summer as they move around or an endless spring. They're sort of chasing those sorts of conditions. It's a, it's kind of a lot like what we do. We, we, we pull stuff in to keep our cities sort of comfortable. We pull in, you know, food from Chile all the time or, you know, in the winter or we, you know, or from the Southern hemisphere. So it's, it's kind of similar. So, so choosing these animals, um, was and it was uh, a way of showing that a lot of things do this. There's the free-tailed bat, you know. There's so there's a flying mammal. There's the butterfly. There's the pronghorn, and and a crane. So we have we have very different organisms, but they're all trying to live with variability. And these animals get around it by or get around the difficulties of a variable climate by moving. Um, we tend to get around it by pulling stuff to us. Um, but it's the same idea. It's, it's just a very animal sort of thing to do. Um, so I thought they were wonderful examples, and it's an absolutely beautiful map.
0: It really is. Um, two things that really stuck with me from this book. One, beetles. Beetles of all kinds <laughs> really are sort of, I don't know, we can learn a lot about ourselves, our planet, and how it's changing by what beetles are doing and doing to other Uh, you know, living organisms. So beetles. And then number two, just sea rise and what that will cost in human experience and in in real money. So let's take beetles first. They're fascinating creatures that that are really sort of a a harbinger of how the climate is changing.
1: Yeah, certainly. So beetles are interesting as well because uh, for folks who have taken trips uh to the mountains out west or to like uh, British columbia and canada you 've seen a lot of dead trees um, there are uh, outbreaks constantly going on these days and they're they're a very interesting story because they 're not they're not invasive they 're a native species it 's an example of a historical dynamic which has gone on for thousands of years which is now getting upended in um surprising ways uh, by climate change. So these beetles uh, typically get by, by uh, essentially attacking dead and dying trees. Um, they can, they raise their young, uh, while well, they lay their eggs inside the bark of dead and dying trees. And they target dead and dying trees because those can't fight back as well. Um, the way a tree fights back is it essentially pushes the beetle out with sap. Uh, and so um, only a tree that's sort of on its last legs is really is really a target because it won't be able to push the beetle out. doesn't have enough sap flow. But if the temperatures get warm enough, these beetles start reproducing like crazy, uh, potentially more than once in a given year, and the populations explode. And all of a sudden, we've got 10,000 beetles attacking trees. And it doesn't matter how healthy this tree is, it cannot tolerate 10,000 little holes. And so all of a sudden, the population is big enough that green trees, like healthy trees, are a target, and that's what happened over the past couple decades in Colorado, Wyoming, Washington, British Columbia, uh, and elsewhere in in the mountains. We have po- beetle populations so large that all of a sudden, healthy trees, which didn't really used to ever be on the menu, are, and so we have. It is essentially a natural system gone haywire. So I, it is a great example of of what climate change can do. Uh, To something that's just been sort of chugging along a natural sort of dynamic for a long time where the beetles really benefit from the warmer temperatures the trees suffer and as a result the beetles go nuts um and to to sea level that was one of the more interesting chapters to write because it's it's something that a lot of that that makes the news from time to time of course but it really is this sort of Ponderous thing which is happening in the background. It's a slow, inevitable thing that happens slow enough that it's below our radar a lot of the times. Um, you know, it's it's a time scale. we're talking about decades, a um, couple inches. You know, every decade or an inch every decade. It doesn't sound like much, but it's such a it's like a it's like a gigantic battleship. We're not going to turn it around real quick. And so, if you look around the world, you can pull out cities uh, where. There are millions of people exposed in any city, in any given city, and trillions of assets exposed in any given city. Miami is the poster child, of course, uh, in the United States. The, the highest point in Miami, Miami-Dade County, is about six feet above sea level. And we're expecting one to four feet just in the next 67 years of rise and more past that. And we're locked into that. Like, we've already put enough energy into the ocean just literally at the rate of atomic bombs per second in terms of the amount of energy we're putting on, we're just putting in a, tr- a tremendous amount of energy into the ocean. That that will happen, kind of regardless of what we're doing. So now we're trying to mitigate <laughs> or slow slow the rise. There's other places though, um, Shanghai in China, um, for example, Mumbai, Calcutta. These these places have 10 million people exposed to sea level rise in each one of these places and tr- like i said trillions of assets so the the slow rise of the ocean um in any given spot you can you can maybe ignore it but then you step back and you look at the globe you're like holy smoke there is just a lot of land here that is going to be under the under the ocean soon, or at least uh, heavily impacted during high tides and and storm surges. Yeah, so the the sea level situation can really only be appreciated with these big with these big maps. But once you once you do capture it, it's it's impressive, it's yep. real impressive.
0: And of course, there are countries like Tuvalu and the Marshall Islands, which are facing
1: going underwater.
0: Yeah, yeah. possible extinction.
1: Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite literally uh, fighting for their, for their homeland, uh, their lives, you know, and, and it's kind of, it's not kind of, it is tragic that there are uh, whole peoples where their landscape is just going to disappear. And, and so, uh, you know, these are things that are, you know, equity issues and, and, simply things that we have to pay attention to other sovereign nations are literally going underwater. You know, we'll lose Florida or parts of parts of the coast of Florida, for example, but they're going to lose essentially everything. Um, and that's actually one of the, one of the sadder cases near the end of the text. Um, and again, the the point of this book is not really to be alarmist it's to explain how things work and let people draw their own conclusions, but you inevitably have to talk about consequences. And the first Like known, or the first extinction we can confidently say was climate change and climate change only um, actually is a result of sea level rise. Um, And I should step back and say there's lots of animals that have, we have a very high rate of extinction right now, but being, scientists are generally very conservative people in the sense of you don't want to claim something that hasn't happened. And so Anytime there's an extinction often it's like well it was deforestation and climate change or it was this and climate change well there's this um this small rodent creature called the bramble k Melamis, which is just north of Australia and it is it is essentially the first documented extinction which has no uh no other cause at all we, like we th- this is this is climate change it'll be the first of many but there's the the one that we cannot say, was anything else it was just climate change it was a small rodent that lived on a, a K or a key like a small sandbar island north of australia and nobody lives you know nobody goes there it's uh it's just this this island there's no human impact to it uh, uh really and, and folks had gone back and forth every once in a while to monitor the island but uh, as the sea level has risen in that area uh the the shoreline was just eaten away a little bit and a little bit. And then there's a series of really strong storms, which probably swept uh, completely over the island, you know, storm surge rates, sea level, and and it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't we can't blame that on anything else except for sea level rise. And that is occurring because of climate change.
0: You write toward the end of the book that you can come away with this book, uh, reading stories of adaptability, be it a tree or a beetle or, or some other species, and think, hey, you know, over the eons, things have evolved. There's hope, or you can come away complete or 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 very very concerned, perhaps edging towards worry. And I'm wondering, do you fall somewhere in between there when you think about the future?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. I think I'm by uh, sort of of two minds. <laughs> I, you know, the the book is meant to be essentially educational. There are a lot of things to be alarmed about, whereas I'm here just trying to explain how things work. Um, So at times you look at this and yeah, especially the sea level rise because it's so we're locked into so much of it already. It is hard to be optimistic, but I don't think you can do things like this without having a little bit of optimism in there as well. Um, You know, we can't just sit down in despair uh, because that's not going to solve anything. And so uh, I also have very much an optimistic side. And and I th- I think there's evidence for that. There's reason to be optimistic. One was COVID. The uh, folks have been calling it the anthropos, uh, at least in the scientific community, <laughs> uh, you know, in the sense that people sort of stopped doing stuff for a year. And I think everyone was surprised at how quickly uh, environmental systems bounce back, you know, um, like Venice, like uh, dolphins in the canals in Venice and uh, air quality improves so, so quickly in many urban areas. I, I think that gave a lot of folks a lot of hope that these systems really are resilient. And the other reason um, to be optimistic is just human, human ingenuity. You know, there's a lot of things standing in a way in the way of that, you know, there's developing countries that obviously want a better standard of life and their only model is a fossil fuel intensive one. But, you know, there's, there's also a lot of push towards, um, clever technology, people changing their behavior willingly, um, government pushes like COP26 and then, um, the youth with uh, more organized protests at COP26, like there's just a lot of energy around this and a lot of clever folks thinking about it. The world's largest carbon capture, um, station came online in iceland just a few months ago so there is a lot to be alarmed about um and and we're past the point of causing impacts it's not like we're let's just stop this and reverse it now we're, we're already committed to a lot of problems and we've already lost like the bramble k melamies for example we've already had people dying um, in heat waves um the midwest where you are is going to get a lot more floods or it already has a lot more floods and it's going to continue to get more floods. So there's a lot to be alarmed about, and um, unfortunately, we've already lost a lot of stuff. We've passed many points <laughs> of no return. You know, we're on a spectrum of impacts, but there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that we will turn some things around as well, because people do care, and and I honestly think that once people start to understand how this stuff works, it'll become more real to them, and um, they can, you know, act appropriately.
0: Brian Buma's new book is The Atlas of a Changing Climate. It's published by Timber Press. We talked with him earlier this fall. More big ideas still to come on this Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large, including our conversation with a pair of authors who think time is way overdue for rethinking the country's tax code. And then later, Douglas Woke explains why he read every single Marvel comic book since Fantastic Four number 1 in 1961 and what the big, big story of all those volumes is. That's still to come on today's Ozarks at Large. On tomorrow's Ozarks, for Thanksgiving Day, we spend time with members of our Ozarks at Large family, listening to them tell stories we've heard before and thoroughly enjoyed. Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History has archives from the center dealing with, appropriately enough, turkeys and poultry. Charlie Allison, the executive editor with University Relations at the University of Arkansas, is back with us for a rebroadcast of his story, about one of the most famous traditions and legends at the U of A, the spoofer stone. We'll hear an encore of Leah Uribe's sound perimeter that concentrates on strings. And we'll hear again our militant grammarian discussing nicknames. One more time around the holiday table with some of our Ozarks at Large family. That's tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen to us by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large.
2: Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Scott Family Amazium in Bentonville offers a place to play during the holidays. All ages are invited to experience the joy and discovery of the arts and sciences through hands-on, interactive experiences. The Amazium is closed on December 24th and 25th. Holiday hours, exhibits, and more information available at amazium.org.
0: This is... Ozarks at large. Last month, we reached the two authors of the new book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. We talked to them by Zoom. And the backdrops for Morris Pearl and Erica Payne couldn't have been any more different. Morris Pearl is the former managing director of BlackRock, one of the largest investment firms in the world. He's now an advisory board member of a group called Patriotic Millionaires. He was seated below a palm tree on a beach near Hilton Head, South Carolina. Erica Payne, his co-author, is the founder and president of Patriotic Millionaires. She was seated in front of a computer in her home office. Their new book discusses tax policy in an informative and often irreverent manner. Morris Pearl says he's inspired to discuss changing how and who pays taxes because he's a student of history.
3: We live in a country where we have all these people who are not doing well. And in previous generations, people who weren't doing well at least hoped that they or their children would do better, but they've even lost that hope. And if people don't hope to do better, then they have no incentive to even cooperate with civilization or civic society. And I'm afraid we're seeing a breakdown in things. You know, we're seeing protests marching the street. We're, we're seeing protests killing people in the Capitol building a few months ago. And I'm afraid it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And our society kind of depends on the fact that millions and millions of people kind of put up with the fact that some of us are doing far better than others. But that's just the way it is. And I think we're losing the. This system where so many people just kind of put up with everything because it's getting worse and worse and worse. They're seeing the rich get richer and richer and richer. And they're seeing not only themselves and their families falling behind, but they're seeing no hope of even their children or grandchildren ever catching up. And I'm afraid we're looking at the possibility of a breakdown in society like happened in other countries in the past. You know, when I was a teenager in South Africa, you know, as I said, that did not end well for the rich people.
0: Erica. you write that you never thought you, as a young, young person, you didn't think you'd write about tax policy. But one of the keys to easing some of what Morris Pearl just talked about would be tax policy. Um, I think most people would roll their eyes when they hear those that phrase, tax policy. But you and your writing partner make it incredibly interesting in this book. What developed your interest in in tax policy and and distribution of wealth?
4: Here's the thing: I don't even know. I just have a very low tolerance for nonsense. Um, I could use a different word for it, but I won't because we're <laughs> on the air. But I mean, I actually I went to Wharton Business School, right? And so I'm I'm in and amongst, from a peer point of view, some of the folks who are now, you know, high highfalutin private equity people. And I just cannot stand the lies that perpetuate year after year after year and have invaded our public policy. And this is not a matter of being punitive or taxing rich people. As we sit here today, I am a salaried employee. I use my time to make money to support my family. Morris Sits around on the beach. No offense to you, Mr. Chairman. Morris sits around on the beach and doesn't do anything and clicks a button now and then and sells some stock. And God bless him. I'm glad he has as much money as he has. We'd love everybody to have that much money. But there is no logical reason whatsoever why Morris should pay half the tax rate that I pay. So I don't even care about, you know, at this point, I'm not even trying to say raise taxes on rich people. I'm just trying to say just at least make them pay what all the rest of us are paying. And so it's not just that the wealthy have so much and that they that the inequality in this country has reached like completely unsustainable levels. Our society is falling apart because we are at 100-year highs of inequality, and we have a tax code that guarantees that we will become more unequal more quickly over time. And so I'm interested in tax policy because I can't stand lying people, and they're driving public policy. And I can't stand people making excuses for why they should get special treatment, because they shouldn't. You know, private the carried interest loophole is the prime example of just like a whole bunch of private equity people making up a bunch of nonsense so that lawmakers will be scared enough that they treat them with kid gloves. I mean, we're not having a debate right now about taxing the rich. The Democratic Party is debating whether or not it is going to tax its donors, period.
0: All right, let's take the uh, second L in the... uh second part of the book's title, Loopholes. What are What is an example or a couple of examples of loopholes that you would like to see closed or eliminated that could help change things?
3: How about just the idea that investors who make long-term capital gains pay lower tax rates than people who work for a living? That's the most obvious thing that underlies the Buffett rule that President Obama talked about a dozen years ago.
4: I'll give you another one right now. So say Morris buys some stock worth a million dollars and he sells it several years and it gets to be worth like $10 million and he sells it. Okay. He's going to pay a capital gains tax on that $9 million of gain. The $1 million basis, it goes to 10 million. He's going to pay taxes on the 9 million. If the day before he sells it, he dies and leaves it to his kid. His kid will inherit that asset at a new basis of $10 million. If the kid then holds it until it's worth $11 million, he will pay taxes on the $1 million of gain, the $9 million that it gained during Morris's lifetime before he passed and passed it on to his kid. That entire thing is knocked out. And so we want to, that's what's called the stepped up basis. So the basis of the stock is stepped up on transfer, okay? We want to eliminate the stepped up basis with some sort of reasonable carve out for family farms, but you've got a bunch of previous politicians, Democratic politicians, Heidi Hadkamp, a former senator going around insisting to her colleagues that they should not eliminate the stepped up basis. It is, if you don't want to live in an aristocracy, you need to eliminate the stepped up in basis, period. You have to eliminate that loophole. But clearly the people who are making tax policy want to live in an aristocracy and there are enough bought and paid for former politicians going in there and talking to their colleagues, Max Baucus, Heidi Heitkamp, you know, Blanche Lincoln, You know, they are in here arguing with their former colleagues about why they should not. Again, it's not even taxing the rich. It's taxing the donors. Maybe we should change the phrase. Tax the donors to politicians. Save America.
3: So That's why somebody like um, um, when Sam Walton created Walmart, he paid income tax on all the salary he earned. But nobody, not he, not his children, not his grandchildren, ever paid any taxes on the tens of billions of dollars of value they created in that business.
4: And this is all going along while a regular person walks into work 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year, and they walk out with less money than a person who invests for a living and sells some stock. If I make $100,000 in a year working full time, And Morris makes $100,000 clicking a button on an E-Trade account. I pay $9,000 more annually in taxes than he does for the pleasure of working. That is insane. No wonder people all over America are ticked off, you know? And then you see people like Jeff Bezos sucking money out of Amazon employees. There's a reason he thanked his Amazon employees when he sent himself up to space in a spaceship, you know, because he sucked the lifeblood out of them. They still paid higher taxes than he pays. He doesn't pay any taxes because he just looks at his assets. He borrows against his assets. So he doesn't even have any income. So the guy goes and builds himself a rocket ship and thanks the little people behind who he exploited for years in building his company. I mean, it's no wonder people are are furious.
0: I'm afraid to ask this question, but but I want to hear the answers from each of you. Are you optimistic
3: about the future? I'm a lot more optimistic now than I was a few years ago when we started this process. This was a. These were crazy ideas, taxing the rich, you know, five or 10 years ago. Now, in this past election, we had, you know, a number of presidential candidates running on this. The president of the United States is backing some of these things. The chairman of the Senate Finance Committee is backing these ideas. We haven't reached the end yet. And, you know, there's reason that the goal is in doubt, certainly. But yeah, I feel optimistic about America. I really do.
0: All right, Morris on the... Beach at Hilton Head Island feels optimistic. Erica, in your
4: office? I do not feel optimistic. I feel incredibly frustrated and incredibly just, I I can't believe that, that we cannot do the very most obvious thing to rescue this amazing country of ours. We have created a dynamic that is going to guarantee the decline of this country and our current lawmakers are so controlled by moneyed interests that they are not going to fix it. And that is heartbreaking to me.
0: Erica Payne and Morris Pearl are the co-authors of the new book, Tax the Rich, How Lies, Loopholes, and Lobbyists Make the Rich Even Richer. The book is published by The New Press. We talked with them via Zoom last month. We're spending today's hour talking with authors who've written about big ideas like rethinking the tax code. Douglas Wolk spent years finding every panel of Marvel comic books since 1961 to read one of the longest and still growing pieces of fiction ever created the Marvel Universe. Why he did it, how he did it, and what he learned, still to come on today's edition of Ozarks at Large. You can spend any Part of your day with classical music provided by KUAF. KUAF2 is our HD channel that's devoted 24-7 to classical music. It's available for free on your HD radio, whether your HD radio is in your car or in your home. It's also available through our free updated KUAF app for iPhone and iPad, through our free live streams available at KUAF.com, and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. And if you're in the mood for jazz... There's KUAF3, providing jazz throughout the day, all day. It's available through the same free channels as KUAF2.
2: Arkansas' Senior Health Insurance Information Program offers free, confidential, unbiased advice for those receiving or about to receive Medicare and the Part D drug plan. Open enrollment runs through December 7th. A.R. SHIP can help individuals make the correct decision about their health care needs, including the Part D drug plan. Help and information is available at 1-800-224-6330. That's 1-800-224-6330. KUAF is supported by Hendrix College, offering engaged learning by linking classrooms to the world and developing career skills throughout its curriculum. Hendrix graduates pursue medical, law, and other advanced degrees, preparing students to lead lives of accomplishment. Hendrix.edu slash connect for more information.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Today, we're listening to new interviews with authors who have some pretty big ideas. Marvel Comics, the home of Spider-Man, Captain America, Black Widow, and Black Panther, may be the single biggest influence on our contemporary popular culture. Four of the eight all-time box office films in history feature Marvel characters, and were released in the last eight years. The highest-grossing movie seven of the last ten years has been set in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now that same fictional landscape is home to some of the most watched streaming television shows on Disney+. Plus. But long before Hollywood was making billions with the likes of Iron Man, thousands of comics were being sold to readers. Douglas Woke decided to read them. All of them. At least all of them since the superhero team The Fantastic Four first emerged in 1961. His new book is All of the Marvels. He wanted to see what, if anything, all the issues since have revealed in what he writes is the longest, continuous, self-contained work of fiction ever created.
5: 27,000 comic books, over half a million pages, a story that's been going on for 60 years. And I just really wanted to see what that story looked like as a story. What it said about Its creator is what it said about the world that it was created in and the world that it was published into.
0: All right. And I want to talk to you about some of those themes and narratives in just a minute. But listeners will have to know, how did you do it? What's the the condensed way that you took on 27,000 and counting volumes?
5: I read those comics any way I could. Uh, A lot of them I read on Marvel Unlimited, which is their kind of Netflix-ish, all-you-can-read service that helped. I didn't have such a hard time tracking them down. Tracking them down was not the hard part. I've been buying comics for 40 years myself. I got lots of friends who have the stuff I I didn't have, and Unlimited took care of most of the rest. There's paperback collections and hardcover collections. The library here in Portland, Oregon was uh, wonderful for that. It was really just reading them all. And... I didn't read them in any kind of order. I just grazed. I just read whatever I felt like on any given day and kept going until I'd crossed off every line on my spreadsheet. Of course, there were some lines when I realized, oh, there's a big patch of the spreadsheet that I've been avoiding, <laughs> which is how I ended up locking myself into an apartment for 11 days and reading all The Punisher.
0: I'm Sorry about that, but...
5: <laughs> I made it. I made okay. it. I survived.
0: <laughs> all right, so roughly this starts this this work of fiction, this universe starts with Fantastic Four number one in 1962. You, you approach this in the book All the Marvels as if this is one sort of very complicated with many, many different um, tangents, but one story. And is it?
5: It is. It really is. Any part of it can refer to any earlier part and often does. Every part of it is supposed to be more or less compatible with each other, and basically is. It works kind of the same way that the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies and TV shows do. do, Like, they're all their own things. They're all individual stories, but they're also all connected into one gigantic story.
0: Which is unusual in works of fiction. Shakespeare didn't have a shared
5: universe. Well, he kind of did. You know, uh, the, Fal- the Falstaff plays, but not so much. Right. <laughs> they don't all fit together.
0: Right. Um, so... Are there recurring themes that go on for these decades?
5: Absolutely. You know, at the beginning, for the first eight or so years of the story, it is so much about that Cold War moment, about the fear of what's behind the Iron Curtain. They never say you know Russia or China. Always, behind the Iron Curtain is always how it's phrased. But there is this fear of monsters and of the alien and of what is disguising itself as your ally. And that changes over time. As the Vietnam War goes on, as public opinion about it changes, you see much more fracturing, much more of fearing authority and what authority can do if it's malevolent as a theme coming in the 70s. In the 80s, there's a moment where – Pretty much the entire story suddenly goes underground, literally. There are things happening in tunnels underneath New York City. There are things happening under the ocean. There are things happening under the Earth's crust. And there's the sense that there is something new bubbling up from inside that will emerge somehow. In the last 10 years or so, one theme that keeps turning up over and over is who controls the story? Who controls how you understand the world? What is real news and what is fake news? And it's really interesting to see that all emerge. I'm sure 10 years from now, I can look at comics from right now and I'll go, oh, that is so 2021. That is so obviously of that moment in ways that maybe I can't see yet.
0: You you write in all the marvels that um, it can be intimidating if someone has never picked up, you know, they're no doubt aware of Spider-Man, Fantastic Four and the Incredible Hulk. But if they've never picked up a comic and they were to go into a comic book retailer, they'd just be overwhelmed. You say, don't let that be the case.
5: Or be overwhelmed or be confused or embrace confusion. There is a real joy to going into a story and not really understanding what's going on at first, not knowing who everybody is, and then figuring it out. And then you're going to get one, oh, I get it now, moment after another. And those, oh, I get it now moments are wonderful things to have no matter what. You know, when you see a movie, they don't necessarily have everybody walk on and explain who they are and what, they, what they're what they doing at first. And with superhero comics that have been running for a while, it's a little similar. You know, there's some backstory. They're going to tell you everything you need to know if they're any good at all. Some of them aren't, but it, they're going to explain it. It's going to become clear eventually.
0: Well, part of the joy for me as a kid in the 1970s was figuring it out kind of on my own. I mean – By the time I was buying some of these reprints, like Marvel Tales would reprint some of the old Spider-Man stories and things like that, and it's kind of like history. If you want to figure out, you know, why the Roman Empire fell, you don't know that as a history student until you start kind of putting the pieces together from different places.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right, and that's exactly how these comics work. You read something, you see a name, you see a reference to something that happened in the past, and you can go... Huh, I wonder what the deal is with that. Fortunately, now we have the internet. We used to have editorial notes at the bottom of the panels, like, you know, see Fantastic Four number 244. Now you can go, like, so when did the Skrull's home planet get eaten by Galactus? And <laughs> you type it in. Some somebody's like, oh, yeah, that's in Fantastic Four 244. Yeah, okay, that's where. Cool.
0: Skrullos, <laughs> by the way, is the name of that planet, right?
5: Yes, yes. yes okay.
0: Um, we have to talk about comic books and representation because – Early, they were all written produced almost exclusively by white men. The characters mm-hmm. were almost most of the protagonists were white men, and the initial attempts to get diversity in there were let's generously say clunky
5: they could be clunky they're sometimes pretty far sighted they're sometimes pretty far ahead of their time, and then sometimes they're not uh <laughs> there's, there's some stuff that is a little cringy now. But what's fascinating is that almost always the creators of these comics were trying to do right. And they were listening to their readers. They were listening to their audiences. There's a whole chapter in the book about Master of Kung Fu, which is the comic where Shang-Chi first appeared back in the early 70s, 1973, then 83, that period. And the letters column of Master of Kung Fu is fascinating because it's people writing in to say – This is remarkable. I really like this. But also, why are the Asian characters being colored bright yellow? What's up with that? Can you not? And you've got the writers and editors and artists of the comic printing these letters in the comics and responding to them and listening to them and paying attention. And they do try to do better, gradually. It takes a while, but it happens. Eventually, you start seeing more people who are not middle-aged white dudes making comics and more of that happens. You see more characters who are better represented and better shown coming into the characters. You've got Chris Claremont writing X-Men from the seventies onward, famously saying at every possible editorial conference, is there any reason this character can't be a woman? That was his classic line. And now, you know, there's the current Ms. Marvel, amazing. Kamala Khan, she's a teenage Pakistani-American Muslim girl growing up in Jersey City, trying to find her way in the world, trying to figure out like how she can do good in the world. And she's wonderful. And there's going to be a TV show about her. Real soon.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Shang-Chi because you write in the book that as you were going to press, you were about to put in, well, this is sort of an obscure character that there's no way he'll ever be. Uh, You know, given the spotlight like Iron Man. Lo and behold, as you and I talk, Shang-Chi is number one for the entire year at the box office.
5: I love that. I am so happy to be surprised about that.
0: With all of the marvels, 27,000 volumes, these are characters that interact with each other. The events shape other events. But over the course of a few decades, you have to kind of you know, rewind and
5: <laughs> not do overs, but close, right? Yeah, there there are things that repeat themselves. Notably, especially, you know, any title that is popular is going to get reused. Any situation that catches on is going to reappear in some form later down the line. Spider-Man, bless him. The Spider-Man story is a coming-of-age story. It is how is this teenage boy who has lost everything and you know, has lost his father and then his father figure, how is he going to be able to grow up? And that's a story, like a coming-of-age story, is a story that has an end. And the Spider-Man story can't end because it's a popular thing and it has to go on forever. So his story kind of becomes the itsy-bitsy spider. You know, He only climbs up so high and then something happens and he's knocked back down to the beginning and has to go through it all again. And this happens over and over and over. And that's not a deliberate storytelling decision. That's not a deliberate pattern that was imposed on it by the people writing and drawing the stories. But it's one that, like, when you look at 60 years' worth of Spider-Man stories, it's there. It's really there. And later on, later creators catch on to that, too. And there are ways around that. Like Miles Morales, you might have seen in the Into the Spider-Verse movie. What if Spider Man didn't have to be Peter Parker at all? What if it didn't have to be that particular person? You can have a totally different Spider Man story that is a coming of age story. We're seeing that now.
0: You write about March 1965. Now, this is when lightning kind of is captured in a bottle. The Marvel staff, they're beginning, there are a number of titles now, they're catching on, uh, but it's still a small staff. And because it's a small staff, they do something in that month that really kind of reverberates until today. What was that?
5: It's a really interesting moment. It's that particular moment is mostly the artist and plotter Jack Kirby is doing with the writer, editor, Stan Lee, and a few other people, Wally Wood artists. But what's going on is that the superhero comics are talking to each other. Events happen in each of them that have consequences in the other one. So there is a new lineup of the Avengers, and while that is going on, you know, Thor, like Thor's girlfriend has been kidnapped. And there's a kid who's trying to get in touch with the Avengers, but he can't reach them because they're having a meeting about their new lineup. And then he tries to reach the Fantastic Four, but he can't reach them because they have been left for dead by an attack at sea in their comic the month before. And then he sees Daredevil swinging by and tries to get his attention, but he can't get his attention because Daredevil was busy with something that was going on in the new issue of his comic. And you don't have to read more than one of these comics if you read any one of them fine it's a story on its own and if you do read more than one of them you see how the pieces kind of click together just like the movies and tv shows work now that it was all not just one place where you know you might see iron man show up in the spider-man story but where things happened and they had consequences from one part of the story to another that was thank
0: you so much for your time and thanks for the book Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure, Kyle.
5: Douglas Woke is the
0: author of the new book, All of the Marvels, published by Penguin Press. He talked with us by Zoom last month. We have more about books later this week on Ozarks at Large. On an all-new show Friday, Pastor Clinch Neckloth, the lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville, is back with another book recommendation. This time, it's a new book that digs deep into the fiction, philosophy, and more of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. And actor Max Greenfield, you may know him from the sitcoms New Girl in the Neighborhood, talks to us about his new book aimed at young, reluctant readers. It's called I Don't Want to Read This Book. Those conversations and more on a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large, Friday at noon and 7 on
2: KUAF. It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends Holiday Giveaway. Your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Park Lane Family Dental, Fossil Cove Brewing Company, Romance Diamond Company Jewelers, and more. Winners announced on Friday, December 10th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration available at KUAF.com.
0: This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Springdale. 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF, produced inside the Converse Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville. Our show today, produced inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio by Timothy Dennis. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. You can still find Daryl often performing live through his Facebook and Instagram feeds. Some days, he even takes your requests. We'll be back tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day, with... Another edition of Ozarks at Large at noon and 7, back with a brand new show Friday at noon and 7. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio, I'm Kyle Kellums. Thanks for being with us.